Father God, we invite your Holy Spirit uh, into this, uh, this strange house of worship this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would give us what we need. We pray for nourishment. We pray for empowerment. We pray for inspiration. We pray for healing and deliverance in the ways that we need it. In all, we pray, Lord, that you would be Emmanuel, that you would be God with us this morning, that you would bring us great joy and good news worth sharing. I pray that we'd all be changed at least a little bit before we go. In Christ's name, amen. How you doing? Get into the holiday spirit. Let's warm up. We prepare to receive from the Lord. Roll your shoulders. Click your jaws. Pull your ears. Yeah, I didn't think I could get you to do that one. Uh, let's do a warm-up question. Let's do a blast from the past for you Blue Water regulars. What are the five discipleship questions? Number one, what? What's God been saying to you recently? Good. What's God been saying to you recently? Or, or uh, what's, what's important and sacred in life right now? What's number two? What are you doing about it? That's why it's a discipleship question. What's the Lord saying to you recently? What are you doing about it? Because discipleship is follow through. You guys just acing this quiz. Discipleship question number three. What's getting in your way? If you say, well, what do you, what's God been saying to you? What are you doing about it? What's, what's getting in the way? What are the challenges? Great. Number four. Who are you bringing along? Because if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we always need to be influencing people around us because, you know, life is about love and about sharing and about being an influence of light, salt and light in the world. Uh, so we always want our traveling companions to be asking us, hey, who are you bringing along in the mission the Lord has given you? Great. And question number five, how can I help? Because, of course, we are a community and we help, uh, we help each other. Five discipleship questions. What's question number one again? What's God been saying to you recently? Uh, or sometimes if you're talking to, to maybe someone who doesn't have uh, a faith, doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, then you have to ask it a different way, right? You have to say, well, you know, what's, what's sacred in your life right now? And, and everybody has, has an answer to that question. Like, you know, what's really important? What's going on? So, uh, so we are a community of faith. Turn to the person next to you and ask them discipleship question number one. Ask them in a, in a sensitive manner. If you don't know who they are, uh, this will be you being a Buttinsky. That's great. All right, good. Well done. Snaps to you, everybody. Everybody has now done a little ministry this morning. Because in my mind, life is ministry. In my mind, life is for purpose. And... Uh, Butting into someone's life and inviting someone into yours for positive influence, that's, uh, that's really about the only way to stay on purpose. Uh, so well done. Good. Congratulate yourselves. High fives to everybody next to you. Here's another reason stuff like that is important. It's important to help each other along. Is cause, is there, here's a fact of life. Here's what I think a fact of life is, and you see if you agree with me. We humans don't automatically know how to stay healthy. Think that's true? We don't automatically know what to do. We're a, li we're a little bit different than some of the, uh, the, the simpler uh, animals uh, in the world. Something about being 
complex in the way that we think and approach life, but, but I've noticed that humans don't automatically know what to do to stay healthy. We don't automatically know what to do even to stay alive. Have you noticed that? A human needs a lot of help and a lot of training just to know what to do to be fit and, and fully alive. There are entire industries, fitness and health industries, built on the, on the fact that human beings don't actually know how to do it. They don't only act, know what to do. If they do know what to do, they have problems doing what they know how to do. They have huge problems with follow-through on, on simply doing good stuff to stay healthy and, and strong. We have, we have a hard time eating right, even though at this point we pretty much know how to eat right. But still, there's something in us that, that gets in, in the way. Uh, and, and, and everybody recognizes this. Like I say, their entire industry is built uh, around it. And it's something about the human condition that every society recognizes, every world religion recognizes that human beings are not what they should be. And stuff gets in the way. In fact, a lot of our grand human traditions, our, our religious traditions, uh, our, our folk tales and folk wisdoms and, and things like that, all of that stuff is designed to pass on survival wisdom from one generation to the next. Because, again, the, 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 the underlying supposition is, is because if, if we don't help individuals learn, then, then they won't be able uh, to, to pull it off. Here, here's, the, here's the upshot uh, of that little meditation. I think we're all half insane. I mean, technically and literally, I think we're all half insane. That, that word insane literally means not healthy. That's what that means. Um, and, and I think we're all half not healthy. We're all half sick all the time. We're all a little broken, all a little shattered in, in the way that we think about things and the way that we, we get through life. And, and you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Uh, to be half unhealthy, half sick, provided we recognize that we have that condition. Right? The real trouble starts when we fail to recognize that we're half cracked. The, the real trouble begins when we fail to recognize that we need help to make it along. I mean, the good news is that there are ways to help each other. Every society has ways to help individuals along. And I think, uh, you know, the the Jesus Church especially excels at those things. That's why we help disciple each other. That's the way that, that we talk about it. Oh, but if you don't know, if you don't know how half dead you are in your brain, oh, then, then you're in trouble, right? As Jesus says, uh, if, uh, if your light is darkness, oh, how great is the darkness. If you don't realize that your eyes aren't seeing things clearly, if you don't realize that you're, that you're your eyes are a little dim, oh, then it's a double darkness. Then, then you're uh, in deep trouble. So last week uh, was an interesting service. Um, right as I began my sermon, the power went out. Um, parenthetically, who is praying for that? <laughs> who doesn't like my sermons? Um, so uh, I, I, I kind of gave half the sermon that I planned. But what we were talking about is is the way that human beings embrace death. Uh, 
human beings have a death wish. There is in human beings a desire for annihilation. Uh, psychologists talk about it since the time of Freud. They've talked about the, a, a death wish. Uh, he's the guy that, that coined that term. And, and psychologists uh, today, uh, you know, they, they, they vary with, uh, with how they, they think about that. But, but I just kind of look at, at world traditions and I think, oh yeah, this is totally true. Uh, you know, world, world religions like Hinduism and, and, and Buddhism have at their core their desire, their goal isn't eternal life. Their goal is eternal death. Right? Their goal is annihilation. That, that's, that's what all that nirvana stuff uh, is about. Life is suffering, and we get on this wheel of reincarnation. We just keep getting reborn into suffering until finally, if we live correctly, if we do everything right, we get to escape the wheel of life and finally just die, just disappear from existence. And that's comfort. That's comfort. And billions and billions of people sort of embrace that philosophy. And even the people that don't embrace the philosophy religiously, I think, manifest the philosophy a lot. And, and this is what psychologists um, recognize about humans, that we often choose death and destruction for the sake of comfort and strength. And we've all seen people do that, right? When we're going through a really painful time of life, we do things that we know full well are going to destroy us. Everybody's seen it. If you haven't done it yourself, somebody close to you has done it. Their life has gotten troubled. They make a choice for self-destructive behavior. Why do people do that? You know, Paul raises this uh, uh, with respect to himself in the middle of the book of Romans, the epistle that he wrote to the Roman Christians. He said, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I sin? Why do I choose paths of self-destruction? I don't even understand why I do it. But at bottom, the reason we do it is because we think that death and destruction is a superior solution to suffering and pain than righteousness and life are. Um, and that, I don't know, that's just, it's just part of, of human nature. Again, we're all half-cracked. It's not just that we don't know how to survive, but there's always part of us that, that really wants to just be destroyed and end it because it seems perversely comforting. And so human beings get stuck in that tension. You know, I, I, I kind of know what would be good, but it's hard for me to do what's good. I kind of prefer doing what's destructive. And everybody recognizes that. All the religions, the psychology field, everybody recognizes that. We often think death is a better source of comfort and strength than life is. So what I want to talk about today is, is how, how we choose, actually. I mean, how, how people choose life or death in the moment, uh, generally speaking. Uh, because I, I think that's, that's sort of the crux of life. You know, when it comes right down to it, are you choosing life? Are you choosing death? Um, and I, on one hand, I hate to be overly dramatic. Uh, on the other hand, I'm trying to be really dramatic today. Uh, because it's a big part of, of the Jesus message. It's been a big part of God's message to people uh, from the very beginning. The text in your program today uh, is one that I mentioned uh, last week in my truncated uh, sermon. That's a simple scripture from Deuteronomy 30. Uh, the story uh, of the book of Deuteronomy in the early Old Testament is that God is just beginning to put together a people. And, you know, and they're primitives at that point. They don't understand things very well. So, so these are 
God's just giving them basic lessons and, and, and basic rules. He's trying to give them boiled down bullet points to kind of get the ball rolling so that these people can build a culture and a society of, of, of godliness and wisdom uh, and, and faith. And, and this is how he puts it to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30. As after he has laid out some of these rules, some of these guidelines, given them some coaching, and finally he, he says this to them. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. So today, let everybody know, let all of the universe realize that the choice I'm really giving you is a choice between life and death, the choice between blessing and curse. I want everybody to understand that, he says. Now choose life, which seems like it should be a no-brainer. But he's constantly saying it. No, guys, you got to choose life. You can't just exist. You got to choose it. You got you to gotta go for it. Choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. I mean, that's, that's why he wants you to pay attention uh, to what he says because, I mean, that's the, that's the path to, to life. If you choose God, you get to live. If you choose life, you find God. He's trying to make that very clear. For the Lord is your life. And then he uses, he uses that word Lord. You know, you, you find life when God isn't just God, he's Lord. You know, when, when you put him in charge, when he's master. That's what Lord means. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore. Uh, to, to your fathers. It's just a life and death choice. And, and the basic thing that God says to his people, the basic thing he said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was, look, there are two trees. Choose the life one. Choose life. And it seems simple, but it's just a lot harder uh, than we might at, at first think. I, I would describe, you know, the whole Bible story uh, as, as uh, not being about a choice between between good and evil per se, I think it's about a choice between, between life and, and death. There's always a struggle against the spirit of death in Scripture, uh, a struggle against uh, the, the God of death. In John 3.16, which is the verse that everybody who's ever gone to Sunday school can quote, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus didn't come to, to you know, uh, free you from your misbehavior, per se. You know, he didn't come to make sure that we all believe in him, per se. He came so that you wouldn't die. He came to help us make choices for life. At least that's how he described it. And there are lots of parables, lots of teachings on this point. He says, wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. You know, find it. In other words, if you're going to choose life, you're going to have to actually think about it. You're going to have to actually look for it. Because it takes some concentration to find it. Staying alive is not easy. Right? Humans are half-cracked. They don't necessarily know what they need to do to be fit and healthy and alive. It's really weird, but that's our nature. That tends to be how it goes for us. So, focus, people! And focus on life 
and let that guide you daily. I'm paraphrasing, but I think generally uh, that's the, the Jesus teaching. So again, I think the big battle in life isn't, uh, I don't think it's between belief and unbelief when it comes right down to it. I think the battle is, is between life and, and death, between the, the spirit of life and, and the spirit of, of death in us. And, and we see this, this battle uh, illustrated uh, again and again in, in Scripture. In Old Testament Israel, we get all these stories about the kings and the prophet and generations of Israel in the Old Testament. Most of those, when it comes come right down to it, uh, they're about uh, you know, the choice between life and death. But, the, but it's, it's a choice that gets dramatized in, in very concrete ways. One of the classic struggles for the people of Israel was between worshiping Yahweh, worshiping God, the God of life, and worshiping uh, the God Baal, or some version of the God Baal in, in the Old Testament. Uh, the Baals. And, and Baal was um, sort of the, the local Canaanite, Mesopotamian uh, god of, of, of uh, strength and fertility and prosperity. There was a lot, of, a lot about Baal that sort of mirrored uh, Yahweh. But, but Baal was, uh, he was the god that everybody could agree on in the area because he had sort of been around and everybody kind of had their own form of, of Baal. Uh, and so... God would command his people, don't be idolaters. Don't worship the wrong God. And after everything that God had done for the nation of Israel, you would think that that would be really easy. But not a generation would go by and the people would start drifting toward the worship of Baal. Um, and, and at first it wasn't like a choice against God. It was just a choice for inclusion. It's like, well, you know, everybody else is, is, is doing it and, and it's just a cultural thing and it's how we get along. So it was a choice for pantheism. Instead of the one true God you worshipped, eh, there's room for everyone, you know. Um, and so it was sort of a watering down, sort of a, a, a compromise. The first step to, to not trusting God is always a willingness to, to compromise with, with other gods and, and, and other mindsets. Um, and so you would, in that day and age, you would make a, a choice for Baal, the god that we can all uh, uh, agree on. And, and once you got into it, then you would have to worship Baal uh, to be part of it. And, and the way you worship Baal is you went to the temple and, and you had sex with temple prostitutes. That's kind of how you did it, uh, which is bizarre, but that's actually a practice that runs through pagan religions all the way into the Polynesian islands. We see the, the same practice here in, in, in the pre-Christian era. And then once you advance in that worship, uh, you, you know, participating with prostitutes at the temple, then you would have to uh, engage uh, with prostitutes at the temple in a homosexual way. That was kind of the next step. And I think what was going on here, why, why was this a part of their temple practice? Well, it was a freedom from sin. That's what it was. It was Baal's version of freedom from sin. Baal's version of freedom from sin is that you do things that you would never normally do in order to convince yourself that there's no such thing as sin. Right? So it's freedom from sin by pretending there is no sin. That's what that was all about. So these, these really intense, bizarre temple practices were kind of designed to free people from sin by causing them to engage in it wantonly and to just get over their hang-ups, you know. 
and it was very culturally pract uh, powerful practice. And then the, the final stage of Baal worship, when people really got into it, is that they would sacrifice their babies to Baal. Uh, you'd have a baby, and then you would heat up a big statue of Baal, uh, and then uh, there'd be a long procession. It was a long ritual, and you'd take your baby uh, up to the statue, and then you would lay it on these uh, heated metal arms and watch your baby burn alive. So it was a pursuit of life that embraced death in the end. And when things got really, really bad for Israel, then uh, one or two of the kings themselves would burn their royal heirs alive on the, the heated statue of Molech or, or Baal. That was sort of the progression. Well, the reason I'm telling you that very, very disturbing story here in the Christmas season. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in a weird way, it kind of, it, it's the setup, it's the backdrop uh, for why the Christmas story was told as it was told. It's a big deal that when God really wanted to reveal himself clearly into the world, he gave a baby. A baby that would be sacrificed eventually. And there was a deep cultural backdrop for him doing that, Right? Said, but my baby will grow up and my baby will sacrifice himself for the cause of life in order to embrace life and to provide it for everyone. Right? Pagan worship, worship of anything but God, ultimately ends in reckless sin and an embrace of nihilism and death. It always goes that way. If you reject God, you always go that way. Always. And God was sort of painting this coloring it by the way that, that he told the story of, of Jesus. There's a sacrifice. There's a, there's a choice for sin and a sacrifice that leads for death, to death. And then there's a choice for righteousness and a sacrifice that leads to life. But that's the choice. Right? That's, that's the choice. And Christmas just tells that choice, the story of that choice in a way that I... I think is, is, is beautiful. Um, ostensibly, we're in a series about revival right now. Um, so the Lord told me to, to, uh, to preach about this phenomenon called revival, where every once in a while there's a lurch in societies, a lurch back toward God. And then the Lord spoke to me different things that I was supposed to preach. Usually the Lord doesn't give me directions about what what to preach, not really specifically, but he's just very, very specific about this. You know, he told me that I, I needed to speak on, on uh, kingdom encounters and miracles of provision and, and repentance and conviction. And, and the last thing he told me to, to, to preach about was on popular attraction. That what happens in revivals is that, you know, chunks of society are attracted back uh, to, to the ways of God. And in thinking about that, I, I, I think the reason that, that droves return to the Lord during, during revival times uh, is, is because they want revival. You know, what does revival mean? It means re, again, vive, life, to live again. They realize that, that they have been living in death, so to speak. But there's something about the message of, of Christ, the message of God, that, that they realize is life. And they're like, I don't want to die. I, I don't want to be annihilated. 
I don't want to just destroy things. And that becomes a thing. <laughs> that, that, that becomes popular as it, as it always should. And there's always, you know, there's always a repentance factor uh, in that. People, the, the spirit of revival is often the spirit of conviction. People are convicted about their sin and they're convicted about what the truth is. So what, what gets unpopular is, is sin, is choice that, that leads to death. There's this big connection between sin and, and death, right? The problem with sin, as Jesus presents it, is not that it's a misbehavior. It's not that it makes God mad, uh, per se. It's that it's harmful behavior, and that's what the old words for sin mean, the, ones, the words that we use in Scripture. The word sin means off-target or falls short, you know, um, so sin is something that brings harm instead of life, right? You're, you're shooting for comfort, but you find that you've chosen a path that leads to death instead of a path that, that leads to life. The problem with sin is that it's, it's destructive, which is why the epistles say the wages of sin is death. You know, it doesn't say if you sin, God will kill you because you've really pissed him off. He says, no, if you sin, it will end up in death. It will earn you death so to speak. It's not about punishment. It's about consequences. Make no mistake, ultimately God will destroy people who have not learned to trust him. But he'll do that not because he's punishing people. He's doing it because those are harmful people, right? They're, they're, they are destructive people. And he has to sort of eliminate them from the flock. Otherwise, they will harm the rest of the sheep. It's that sort of idea. It's euthanasia. It's ending a, a destructive situation. Um, even God's judgment is merciful in that sense. He's doing it for, uh, for, for the greater good. When we get locked in sin, we start to embrace death. And that's what happens. So anyway, how does one choose death? That's what I was going to talk about. Let's just wrap up. How does one choose death and how does one choose life? How does one go about choosing death? Well, here are, here are a few things uh, for us to consider because the way we choose death, well, that's, those are the reasons that we don't choose life. Number one, when we choose death, it always starts small. Right? It's, never, it's never like a choice to, to die. It's a choice to compromise. You know, it's, it's the God that everybody can agree on, as was the case for the Israelites who started flirting with Baal back in the day. Or as Jesus said, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. You know, what is yeast? It, yeast is a little tiny ingredient that you put in a huge batch of dough. And it's just tiny, tiny little granules that, that you would hardly see. It's just little stuff that in a very brief amount of time comes to influence the entire loaf of, of dough, the entire batch of dough, right? Beware, beware the small compromises. It always, always starts that way. That, that's how sin gets into your life, and so that's how death gets into your life. It's not a wholesale decision. It's just a, it's just the compromise position. You know, it's the neutral position. That's, that's always how it starts. You know, some choice is prevented to you and, and maybe your conscience has a little qualm with it, but then you say to yourself something like, ah, you know, there, there are different ways of looking at this stuff. You know, people think differently about, there are different perspectives, you know, and it's just, you just assume the compromise uh, position. That's always how it starts. Second step is that little bit of sin 
Well, it grows and it gains control over you. The nature of sin is controlling. It's not something that you can just pick up and set down easily. And anybody who's ever tried to fix their diet knows this. Right? You know full well what the right things to eat are. You know full well what the wrong things to eat are. How many of you are succeeding? And that's just food, you know. That's nothing particularly powerful. That's, that's, that's just food. But it's not something, sin is not something you can easily just pick up and, and set down. And, and when, uh, when God first discusses sin in Scripture, uh, in the story of, of Cain and Abel, he presents it as an addictive element. Cain is, uh, in the story, he's thinking about murdering his brother Abel uh, because Cain has become bitter. And God picks up on this, and so he comes and he has a conversation with Cain, and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Look, you have a choice. And then he says, you must master it, or it will master you. Don't let it in the door. Don't let it in even a little bit, or it will take control really quickly. And many of us have experienced that. Many of you are experiencing it right now. There is something in your life that you know is bad, but you just can't seem to get rid of it. And so the temptation is to say, ah, well, you know, it's no big deal. Uh, there are different ways of looking at this. Everybody's doing it. Everybody has a perspective of, of it. You know, it's, like, it's just a little thing. I can keep it under wraps. It's just over here in the corner, and it never works like that. In the end, it never works like that. It comes to influence all of your life, even if it only occupies a small space of your life. And ultimately, it brings death. Ultimately, it encourages a mindset where you start to embrace destruction. You'll do greater and greater destructive things. You know, you'll get used to it. You'll get used to sin, which is what the, the Baal temple rituals were all about. Come and worship at the temple, do these strange things that you would never do in normal life. Why? Because it's how you get used to sin. Right? It's how ultimately it, you come to let sin control you. That's the pathway to sin. That's what happens. I mean, the pathway to death. That's what happens. And then eventually, once you've gone through those stages, once sin starts to control you, sin becomes your identity. That's the progression. Uh, what I mean by that is, once you reach the stage, if people come to you and criticize your behavior, hey, don't do that, I'm not sure that's healthy, then you feel judged at your core, right? It's impossible for you to make a distinction between people criticizing your behavior and people criticizing you. It becomes impossible for you to make a distinction between people criticizing your behavior and people rejecting you as a person. And shame just comes in and pride comes in. And now you've identified with it. And you don't even realize that it has happened. Oh, this, is, this is just me. This is, this is what, I, what I do. And that might all sound really dramatic, this path that I am describing. But I can't tell you how many times uh, in my counseling office, you know, I've sat with people who have chosen who have, for instance, chosen against their marriage. I will talk to people that, that have committed uh, adultery. And then once they commit adultery, once they get into it, they decide that they're going to end their marriage. They're going to leave their spouse or maybe leave their kids. And I can't tell you in those situations how many times I've heard something like, look, Jordan, 
I know it seems wrong to you, but I just need to be true to myself. I just need to be true to how I'm feeling. Right? It, it has become that person's identity. That's what happens. And when you've reached that stage, it's very hard to make the extraction. Very hard. You become a, a, a puppet uh, at that point. When I, when I hear people say stuff like that, it's like, ah, this, this is just me. I'm just being true to myself here. Uh, then I, I say things like, do you not realize that humans are half insane? Do you not realize that we are cracked on the best of days? You know, this, this is wrong. This is destructive. Take a step back and look at it, but you lose your ability to take a step back and look at anything at a certain point, you know. And, and it just kind of becomes a dangerous situation. And that's the situation into which Christ was born. That's the situation into which we speak the gospel message that was handed to us at, at Christmas time. It's like you are trapped in, in, in destruction. Hey, I got good news for you. I got good news for you. Right now, the kingdom of God is at hand. We can bring some order to that situation. I just need you to make a choice for life. You know, and to not walk down that path where you begin to sacrifice life itself, I've got a better deal for you. All right, begs the question, how do you choose life then? How do you choose life again? And I don't have anything surprising to say about this. You choose life by trusting the God of life. That's what you do. You choose life by trusting the God of life and trusting the ways of the God of life. This is finding the narrow gate. It's like there's only one way I'm going to do this. It's a narrow gate. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to go one place. I'm just going to go to Jesus. And, and I think that's a big reason why God sent Jesus into the world. There needs to be one decision point. If you're going to trust God, you, you have to trust the way that God does things. And so God gave us Jesus, which is a pretty kind offer. Jesus is a very cool dude. Nobody in the world dislikes Jesus. But most of the world rejects Jesus. Jesus is the decision point. Are you willing to make Jesus Lord or not? Are you willing to trust in someone who knows better? Because I'm telling you, you're half insane. You probably ought to trust greater wisdom. You probably ought to trust people who, who have some greater knowledge uh, than you do. You, sh you should trust in a, in, a, in, a, in a Christian tradition that has survived 2,000 years of social evolution and is still thriving. There's a reason for that because it brings life into the world and, and, and not death. So you have to make God into your Lord. I set before you today life and death. Make God Lord. Make God master. The world is really, really complex and is getting more and more complex, and we are half-cracked on our best days. There are lots of gaps in our understanding. There are lots of complexities that we don't understand. You don't know what the future is. You barely understand what the past is. You barely understand what your past has been about, right? What are you going to do in that turbulence? What are you going to do in those complexities, those uncertainties? You're going to trust God's ways. When it comes to a choice, it seems like a moral choice. You're going to say, you know, I don't understand everything. I don't understand exactly why I'm doing this. I don't understand why it's so attractive. I don't understand who I am. I don't understand where this is going. But I'm going to choose God's way right here. I'm going to make him Lord even when I don't understand everything, especially when I don't understand everything. And that's, that's what's called trust. You're trusting 
a greater person. And that is, is the path uh, to, to life. Um, I grew up uh, a very athletic childhood and, and athletic uh, youth. And, and recently, I've gotten back into coaching because my, my daughter is, has gotten into running. Um, and uh, uh, she's doing uh, cross country, which is a sport that I never did. You know, cross country, if you don't know, is that you line up and you race uh, 3.1 miles over uneven terrain and stuff like that. It's kind of, you know, I, I played football. It was, it was painful. It was rugged. But, you know, it was 10 seconds at a time. And, you know, and then you got to scrape yourself up and go back to the, the huddle and inspire yourself again. Uh, but, but cross country has been, has been described as uh, who can take more pain than whom. You know, that's, that's really what, what those races are, are about. And there are a couple girls on, on the team that I was helping to coach, uh, JoJo being one of them, who I decided for various reasons to win the race what they needed to do in the final 300 meters they needed to sprint. They couldn't wait for the last 50 meters, 100 meters. They needed to start sprinting with 300 meters to go. Uh, sort of a strategic thing. Uh, and my daughter was, was one of those girls, so I started preaching that at you. As, now, when you've run three miles and there are 300 meters to go, you don't feel like sprinting at that moment. Do you feel like sprinting at that moment? No. Um, what you feel at that moment is you feel like stopping at that moment. And you can imagine your coach, who may or may not be your dad, <laughs> standing at the 300-meter mark after you have run three miles. And you're coming by, you know, and you're challenging, you're challenging for, for the lead. And, and your coach, who may or may not be your dad, says, now you've got to sprint. What do you think in that moment? Hey, you run. If you think this is so easy, Mr. Coach, uh, because everything in you says no. It is not a good idea to start sprinting right now. That is exactly a bad idea. Um, and the only way to navigate that moment is to pre-commit, right? Is sort of, you've, you've already decided that it's the right thing to do. And then uh, when the moment in the race comes and you run by your coach, who may or may not be your dad, and, and, and he says to you, now, this is the spot, go. You, 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 you have to already have decided that, you know, coach, coach, coach is master, <laughs> uh, so to speak. You're, gonna, you're just going to trust it at that point, and, and you're going you're gonna to take off. Um, and uh, that's what we did. You did that at State Champs, didn't you? Did it work? Yes. Yeah. She, she, there's one girl that had beaten her like six or seven races in a row. And then at States, um, Georgia took off at 300 meters and passed her. And just at the end, last race of the season, uh, she beat her. And then, so I celebrated with JoJo for 90 seconds in the finish line. And then I said, was I right? Because <laughs> I'm a good coach and a better dad. Just an, just an illustration. You, you, you have to pre-commit. You have to have already decided uh, you know, to trust the coach, the better coach, who may or may not be your better dad. That's the only way uh, to get through these moments. And you'll get the, the victory and the breakthrough, even though you don't feel like it 
at the time. We have moments in life where we feel exhausted and pain, and we think, you know, a little compromise would be okay right now, actually. I mean, it's just, just, I, I, I just I, I'm just going to go for the neutral position, you know. I'm just going to go for the position of, of peace. Um, um, but that's the, that's the path that leads to, to death. You know, there's only, there's only that choice. There's only the choice of, of life or death. And a little yeast, a little, yeast a, a, little, a, a little contamination, you know, and, and, and pretty soon that will start to take control. And then you'll find yourself actually pursuing sin as if it were some religious thing that you could not let go of. It happens. It happens, people. And then ultimately, you'll be tempted to sacrifice life itself in some alarming form. You know, you'll be one of those people who makes that mental shift. It's like, what I really want is just to annihilate things. What I, what I really want is just to blink out. You know, when people get really sick in this way, they don't, they don't want to just destroy themselves. They want to destroy existence. And then ultimately they get angry at God, the author of existence. And that's Satan, by the way. Satan doesn't disbelieve in God. Satan doesn't want you to disbelieve in God. Satan wants you to be angry at God because that's how he's gotten stuck. Um, and I would just want us to, to choose uh, uh, against that. I want, I want us to put drama in our lives this Christmas. Drama, life and death choices. And I want us to have a conviction about the message that we're preaching. This is a dramatic message. You know, this is a dramatic moment, as, as Antonio said earlier. This is the greatest adventure that humanity's ever been on. A new kind of sacrificial baby was born into the world. You know, trust, trust that. Trust that. There was an author of life who has told this beautiful, adventurous story, and it's actually true. And if you can trust it, if you can trust him, if you can make Jesus Lord then you get to walk in the pathways of life, and ultimately, you get life everlasting. That's a, that's a pretty good deal. I don't want to be destroyed. And I don't want to be someone who destroys things. Oh, Holy Spirit, uh, we began by inviting you into the house to minister to us, and I pray that we would all receive something dramatic today, something clear, something choiceful. Uh, I pray uh, for those of us who are in that uh, exhausted moment of decision uh, where it feels like maybe, you know, maybe compromise is exactly the right thing to do. I pray that instead you would give us the decision uh, to, to trust the Lord, to press in to overcome, to avoid uh, the yeast of the Pharisees, to avoid the wide, relaxed path that leads to destruction and instead find the narrow one gate that leads to life. I bless your point of decision in Jesus' name. In the name of Christ, I bless your capacity to decide. Don't be a drifter.
be a decider. I bless you to be people of courage.